0: Thank you, Joanne. Please take your Bibles and uh, turn to the New Testament to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. We are continuing to make our way through this book together. Very, I think, practical book. Very helpful book for us as Christians and as a congregation. Uh, we come tonight to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be reading uh, the first 12 verses. 1 Thessalonians Well, I promised you all tonight that I would tell you what God's will for your life is. And so uh, I guess I better deliver that to you. Um, There are times in life when all of us have asked the question, what is God's will for my life? If, If you've never asked it, maybe children, you've never asked it at this point in your life, maybe you will one day. Maybe it's in regard to uh, what school to attend. Maybe it's in regard to what profession to pursue. Uh, maybe where to live or where to go to church. What is God's will for my life? We have to face the fact that God doesn't give us specific instructions about those things. We have to understand that, that God doesn't speak to us today with specific instructions about who you should marry or where you should live or what you should do for a living. You will not find that in your Bibles. Now, that doesn't mean that God has nothing to say about his will for your life. He does speak in his word very clearly, very plainly what his will for our lives is. And that's what we see here in our passage tonight. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul speaks of God's will for our lives in two specific areas. First of all, sexual purity. And second of all, brotherly love. Sexual purity and brotherly love. That is God's will for your life. Now before we get into the passage, before we get into the text... I want you to notice kind of some introductory matters about this passage. I'm going to give you four things very briefly. It's kind of important to keep these in mind as we work our way through this text. First of all, in this passage, you have to understand Paul is making a passionate plea. He says in verse 1, We urge you. He says again in verse 10, We urge you. We, We have been seeing in this book the heart of a faithful shepherd. We've been seeing in this book uh, the heart of one who has a deep concern for the spiritual lives of God's people. Paul doesn't write this letter and say, well, you know what, you guys are Christians now. You've you've got your fire insurance. I'm going to move on somewhere else. I'm going to move on to another field. And he's still very concerned for these people. He he pleads with them. He exhorts them. He he urges them to pursue a life lived in obedience to God's commands. And and the question, I guess, for each one of us is, is do we have that same concern not only for our own lives, but the lives of others around us? Do we have a deep concern for the spiritual well-being of others? Paul certainly did. Secondly, you'll also notice that Paul tells them that this is the path of pleasing God. If you look at the middle of verse 1, he says that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how can I live a life that is pleasing to God? That's really a question that, that all of us as Christians should be asking in light of all that God has done for us. Pause here for a moment and and think of the things God has done for you, Christian. He he brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. He he brought you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. He has washed away and forgiven all of your sins. He's, He's credited to your account the perfect obedience the perfect record of Jesus. He's adopted you into his family. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's promised to, to never leave you or forsake you. And he's promised you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You, you add all of those things up and, and you ask the question how can i not want to please god how can i possibly say i don't really care how can you not want to live your life out of gratitude for all that the lord has done for you and and so in these two things both in sexual purity and brotherly love God is saying this, Paul is saying, this is how you please the God who has saved you by his grace. This is how you live a life that is pleasing to him. Third, Paul is also reminding us in this passage that there's always room for growth. I don't want to spend too much time on this because we looked at this in in previous sections, but at the end of verse one, Paul says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You you believers in Thessalonica are are honoring the Lord with how you live your lives. Keep it up. Keep keep pressing on. Don't become complacent. Don't don't grow weary. Paul says that elsewhere, right? He says don't grow weary in doing good. And sometimes we do. Sometimes we say, I'm I'm tired. Let someone else do it. But, But Paul is urging these Christians to press on. He's urging us to press on. Don't grow weary. Don't don't give up. And then the fourth thing we have to understand about this passage is that these are God's commands. You look at verse 2. Paul says, you know what instructions we gave you, notice, through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, this is the will of God. Verse 7, God has called us to holiness. Verse 9, for you yourselves have been taught by God. These are not ultimately Paul's instructions. These are not not commands that come from, from any human source. Now, you find that sometimes in Christian circles, don't you? Man made rules, man made regulations. You can't drink, can't play cards, can't watch movies. Women can only wear dresses. God doesn't say any of that. Those aren't God's commands, those are man made rules. But, but not here. These are commands that come from God, and therefore, brothers and sisters, these commands have authority over our lives. You remember the old um, E. F. Hutton commercials? When e, this, I date myself. Anybody younger than thirty is going. I have no idea what this guy's talking about. But his old commercials. E. F. Hutton was a I don't know what he was a financial dude or something. And, and the, the saying was when E. F. Hutton talks, people listen. When God speaks to us, and and this this is in a much greater sense. God is much greater than E.F. Hutton. When God speaks, we are to listen. When God speaks, we are to pay attention. This this passage, these words, these commands, Christian, have authority over you and over me. They're, They're not optional. You're not free to pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. You're not free to say, well, I like that commandment, I'll I'll obey that one, but I don't like that one. No, God's commands are authoritative. God's will for us, as Paul says here in verse 3, is our sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? Question answer 35 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks that very question, what is sanctification? Here's the answer, and I've never found a better answer than this one. Westminster Shorter Catechism says sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man, after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That's sanctification. Sanctification has a twofold aspect to it. There's a negative aspect, in a sense, which is dying to sin, and there's a positive aspect, which is living to righteousness. That is God's will for your life. God doesn't tell you where you should live, God doesn't tell you what to do for a living. There's a lot of things God doesn't tell us in His Word, but He does tell us He wants us to be sanctified, He wants us to grow in holiness. And, and so all of this, I think, is an important background to this passage itself. As a reminder, again, that this is God's will for our lives. Paul is pleading with Christians. He's pleading, in a sense, with us tonight to, to, to desire to live our lives in gratitude for the Lord's grace to us, especially in these two areas, sexual purity and brotherly love. So let's look at them. First of all, sexual purity... We're going to spend the bulk of our time on this first point because we've spent a lot of time in this book already talking about loving one another. You have to remember um, the culture that the Thessalonians lived in. It was a culture of, to put it mildly, rampant sexual immorality. That was the norm, not just in Thessalonica but all over that area. If you you went to the local pagan temple, you'd be bombarded with all kinds of sexually immoral options. In in fact, it, it was believed in that day that that's how you would worship your God. That's how you would have communion with your God by having some kind of sexual relationship with someone at the temple. And so temple prostitution was, was rampant. Not just heterosexual temple prostitution, but homosexual temple prostitution. This was a culture that was filled with prostitution, filled with adultery. Nobody thought two seconds about adultery. It was filled with homosexuality. It was filled with sex slavery. And it was feel, filled with pedophilia. In, in fact, uh, The Greco-Roman world was so filled with perverse sexual behavior that the, the, the Jewish rabbis of the first century taught that no Gentile woman could be assumed to be a virgin if she was older than three. That's how vile this culture was. That's how wicked this society was. And all of that was viewed as normal sexual behavior. There was no shame in any of it. Now, it's not too difficult to see that this is where our culture is headed today. We we might already be there. This is the the vile culture that we live in. One author wrote this. He said, in, in our modern times, Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, Ernest Hemingway, Havelock Ellis, Margaret Mead, Alfred King, Masters and Johnson, Hugh Hefner, and all the rest have succeeded in producing an atheistic, hedonistic, pleasure-mad, anti-family, homosexual, pornographic, perverted society. That's the society we live in. It's the world we live in. Go see the movie Sound of Freedom if you want to be reminded of the world that we live in. And we're being told today that all of this behavior is okay. All of this is normal. That there shouldn't be any any shame associated with any of this stuff. And and to the church in Thessalonica, living in a culture filled with sin, filled with filth, moral filth, Paul says, God's will for you is that you be countercultural, that you abstain from any form of sexual immorality. The word that Paul uses there that's translated sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's the word from which we get our English word pornography. And porneia refers to to any kind of sexual activity that is not permissible in God's Word. In other words, any sexual activity that does not take place between one man and one woman within the bonds of marriage is considered to be porneia. And so Paul is saying, in no uncertain terms, you are to abstain Christians from any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Now imagine that you had been saved out of this. Imagine that that this is the culture in which you live. These, These Christians, these believers in Thessalonica, they've not been Christians for very long. And, and they grew up in a culture that said, you know, anything, any kind of sexual activity is permissible. Anything goes. And again, many of them, if not most of them, had come out of this kind of stuff. But, but Paul is saying to them, and he's saying to us tonight, you're not part of that culture anymore. You're not part of that world. You're part of a different world. You're part of a different kingdom. That's true for us Tonight. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. We're not to live like the world around us. We're not to participate in things that are contrary to God's word, that things that the world says are okay. Just like the Thessalonians, we are called to live counter-cultural lives. And if we do this, if we stand up for righteousness, if we stand up for truth, if we stand in obedience to this passage you and I are going to stand out like sore thumbs. We're going to be called narrow-minded, old-fashioned, and backwards. We're going to be charged with being intolerable and unloving, homophobic, and anything else you want to say. But that's okay, because as Christians, we we don't live our lives to please men. We don't live our lives to please this culture in which we live. We're not to be people pleasers. We are called to live our lives to be pleasers of God. Paul goes on in verse 4 and he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Those those who don't know God are marked by the passion of lust. Remember the old phrase, "If if it feels good, do it. Do it. That's what characterizes the unbelieving world. But as Christians, as as those who have been delivered from our sin, as those who are new creatures in Christ, as those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are called to control our bodies. Because we believe we belong, soul and body, to Jesus Christ. And and that is why sexual immorality is, is so unthinkable, because we belong to Jesus Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, Paul says. And here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is saying, don't don't act like the world. That's not who you are anymore. Don't, Don't let this culture give you your marching orders. Don't let this culture dictate to you how you are to live. Get your marching orders from, from God and from His Word. It, it's very easy to be a lemming, right? Lemmings just follow without any thought as to where we're going. Just follow what everyone else is doing. That's very easy to do. But but you and I are called to follow God's word and to live our lives to please Him. Now at this point, you you might be feeling somewhat discouraged. Because you know that that on your own, you you can't live a life that is pleasing to God. That's true for all of us, but that's why we must depend upon the Holy Spirit. You might remember what Paul says in in Galatians chapter 5. He says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In order to control our bodies, in order to obey God's Word, the Bible says we need to walk by the Spirit. You say, okay, well, how do I do that? The Spirit isn't, isn't talking to me throughout the week and telling me what to do. How, how, do, I, how do I walk by the Spirit? Well, there's a passage in, in the book of Colossians that is basically a parallel to Galatians 5. And, and in Colossians 3, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, the point I'm making is that the way we walk by the Spirit is by letting the Word dwell in us, by by being in the Word. This this is where what we call the means of grace come in. In other words, the the means that God uses to grow us spiritually. We saw earlier, you heard earlier from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that the sanctification is a work of God's free grace. But, But God uses means to accomplish his purposes, He uses means to accomplish sanctification in your life. And the Reformed Church has historically said that that the two primary means that God uses to grow us in sanctification is the Word of God, the preaching of the gospel, and the sacraments. In other words, it's, it's as we sit under the preaching of the Word on Sundays and participate in the sacraments that the Spirit is pleased to grow us. That The Spirit works through the means of of word and sacrament. Now, there are other means that God uses. He he uses your own time, your own devotional time in his word. He uses uh, your time of prayer. He uses fellow believers. He uses trials and difficulties to grow us. But but if we are to walk in the Spirit, if, if we are to learn to control our bodies and not gratify the flesh, The primary means of grace, the primary means of spiritual growth, the way of walking in the Spirit is word and sacrament. And so if we are to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we will control our bodies, we need these means of grace. We don't do ourselves any favors when we are very infrequent in our attendance at worship or when we don't participate in the Lord's Supper. And, and when we're here, it's, it's not to our spiritual benefit to, to be inattentive while the word is being preached. It's not to our spiritual benefit to, to just kind of, you know, go through the motions and worship and go through the motions when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And so these, these means that God has given to us are, are very crucial for us. God uses them. Paul goes on and he he says to us that there's not just a a vertical aspect to sexual purity, there's also a horizontal aspect. Look at verse 6. He says that, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you that Paul is making is that there's also a horizontal aspect to our sexual purity. In other words, when we are when we are involved in, in sexual immorality, we're not only sinning against God, but we're also sinning against other people as well. Young people, you you might be dating a person who, who says that they love you and that because They love you. You should be willing to compromise your purity with them. That's kind of what Paul's getting at here in verse 6. He says that a person who would do this is is transgressing and wronging you. The word transgress means to to step over a line. The, The word wrong means to gain something at someone else's expense. If a young man or a young woman wants you to cross the line that God has set... He or she is wronging you. They're robbing you. They are are taking advantage of you for, for their benefit. God takes this very seriously. Paul says the Lord is an avenger in these things. The author of Hebrews says something similar in Hebrews 13. He says, let marriage... Be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You see, it comes down to this God didn't save us so that we can now do whatever we want. God didn't save you so that you could live however you please. The person who says, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus. But then the pattern of their lives is ongoing rebellion against God's word. And the pattern of their lives is, is living however they want. The Bible says that that person's profession is false. The person who has no interest in honoring God with their life, who has no desire to be in church on the Lord's day, who shows no, no fruit of salvation. That profession is an empty profession. And again, that's not why God has saved us. Paul Paul says here in verse 7 God has not called us for impurity, God has called us for holiness. God has called us to walk with Him in obedience. Now, it's important that we always understand that God doesn't call us to do this to earn our salvation, He doesn't call you to do this in order to keep your salvation. But we are called to do this out of gratitude for all that he has done for us. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Paul says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, do what? Glorify God in your body. Now, if you say, well, I don't like that, don't take it up with Paul. Don't take it up with me. Take it up with God. This is God's word. Verse 8 says, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so in the midst of a sexually immoral culture, we are called to be countercultural. We are called to be distinct. Because we don't belong to this world. We don't belong to this evil age. We belong to Christ who gave himself for us. And secondly, Paul also touches on brotherly love. He says, I don't really need to tell you much about this subject. I've taught you this before. You're doing quite well in this area. But if you look at verse 10, he says, we, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. I thought of this this week. Could, could this be said of us? If, if Paul were writing a letter to Zion, would he say, you know, I don't really need to give you a whole lot of teaching on the subject of loving one another because I know, I've heard, I've seen that you're already doing it. But still, Zion, keep on doing it. Is that what Paul would write to us? Is that what Paul would say about me? Is that what Paul would say about you? You know, it's, it's pretty cool what happened here during the week of Vacation Bible School. So many of you were involved. We, we had so many volunteers, and, and I, I, didn't, I felt like I didn't do much it was in my office a lot of time, but when I would come out, I, I, I would see all of you working with kids. And nobody was complaining. Nobody looked miserable. You were all smiling and and happy to be with the kids. And and many of you have remarked to me how much you enjoyed that week. But the the thing is, we can't stop there. We we can't say, okay, we we did our part. The the Bible would say we need to press on. We need to keep moving forward. We need to continue to love and and serve and care for one another. And, And we also need to remember... That, that, that how we live with each other here and, and how, we, how we live out there has an impact on the unbelieving world. You, you notice that in verse 12, Paul, Paul talks about walking properly before outsiders. The, the old saying you've heard before is that a picture is worth a thousand words. You know, without without even really opening our mouths, the, the, the way that we conduct our lives, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we the way we treat other people at the bank, at the grocery store, in the community. That's telling the world something about Christianity. If we're always angry and always bitter and always complaining. And always backbiting. That that communicates something to the unbeliever about what Christianity is like. And and they will say, that's no different than what I see in the world. Paul's reminding us here that that how we walk before outsiders is important. How we live our lives, how we treat others is important. And so the Lord, I, I think, again, gives us very helpful instruction. If if you want to know God's will for your life as a Christian, here it is. His will is that you would be sanctified. His will is that that I would be dying to sin and and living to righteousness, specifically in this passage, living a life of sexual purity, living a life of, of love towards one another. And as we do that, we are the Lord's ambassadors in this world. We are proclaiming, even just through our lives, what Christianity is all about. Now, in this passage, we have dealt with the, the very difficult subject of sexual sin. And, and you know, we have a tendency to to look at at some sins as you know the, the deepest, darkest, worst sins of all time. And maybe even a tendency to, to look at sexual sin as the unforgivable sin. I, I, I want to say to you tonight that, that sexual sin is not an unforgivable sin. If, if you have committed some sexual sin or maybe you know someone who is living in sexual sin. The person who turns to Christ in faith and looks to Him for forgiveness and for grace, He will forgive you. He will wash you clean. He will remove the stain of your sin completely. And if you have come to Christ, you are pure before God. The stain of your sin has been removed and you have been clothed with the perfect righteousness of our Savior. Never let sexual sin keep you from Jesus. Never let sexual sin be a barrier in in keeping you from Christ. This is true for all sin. Run to Christ and be forgiven. He died for sinners. Think of David. Committed adultery and murder. And and yet when he he came to God in repentance, he found grace and he found forgiveness. When you run to Christ, you are washed. When you run to Christ, you are pure. And and this is the message that, that we must proclaim to this world. This world is is awash in moral degradation and filth. And they think nothing of it. There's no shame. We we have the the message that will save them and that will give them life and freedom. And and it's important that, that we proclaim it with love, not with anger, but with love. That they too might might know Christ and be saved and washed clean. This, this is the same gospel, the same hope that we offer to a broken world. And so whether it's sexual sin or any other sin, let us remember that, that the world is not our enemy. They are our mission field. They are people, men and women and children, created in the image of God. God. need Christ who need to hear about Christ and so God's will for us is that that we would be his people we would be distinct that that we would please him that we would love one another and that we would be his ambassadors in this world And, and lovingly and powerfully by the Holy Spirit bring this gospel to such a such a dark, broken world. May we do it to honor the Lord who has saved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you lay out in your word your will for us. Lord, first of all, we thank you for so great a salvation that we have in Christ. And Lord, we pray now in the power of your Spirit and out of gratitude for your grace to us, that we would seek to live lives that are pleasing to you. And we pray that that we would go out into this world and whatever opportunities you give to us, that, that we would declare that there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is freedom, there is life in Jesus Christ. Lord, use us to bring glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.